church, let me invite you to open up to the book of Romans, chapter 10. Uh, this morning, we're going to sort of linger in uh, verses uh, 11 or 14, excuse me, through 17. Uh, and we're sort of shifting gears. If you're a guest or a visitor, we've been going through the book of First John. Uh, we're going to pick back up in that book next week. And, uh, but today is sort of a special day in the life of our church. Uh, and it's a day that we bring recognition to what we call our world missions offering, uh, but also in tandem with that, our Lottie Moon offering. And so uh, I want to just... If you'll just spare me just for a few moments and bear with me. Um, some of you may know some of this stuff. And, and if you don't, uh, this is good information for you to know and uh, for you to be able to engage in as well in the process. And then all of this is going to tie into the text uh, that we're looking at this morning as well. Um, so one of the expectations that we have for those that are members of this church, you come and you serve. Uh, we also hope uh, and expect that as we serve, we also give. And whatever the amount is, we, we just simply want you to be in a posture where we give sacrificially and we give as, as unto the Lord and as the Lord uh, leads us and allows us to do that. And so God has given us elders. He give, he's given us people that serve on different uh, teams and committees that help us allocate the dollars that get spent in the life of our ministry. And so every time you give to the life of our church, um, we have decided as a church that 10% of all of tithes and offerings that we get go out the door. They, they do not affect the immediate area of Travis. And, and there's, a, there's a couple of ways that's broke down that I want you to know this. This is important for you. 9% of all of our tithes to the budget get forwarded along to what's known in the Southern Baptist world as the cooperative program. So we're a Southern Baptist church. We give to the cooperative program. The cooperative program is our way as a convention of supporting uh, institutions like the International Mission Board, the North American Mission Board. Uh, it's the way that we support our six Southern Baptist seminaries and we're able to subsidize tuition costs for pastors and ministers uh, to go get trained and educated. Uh, we have a lobbying group in DC, the ERLC, that they get some of that. And so that money is, is diverted in all kinds of different ways. But 9% just off the top goes immediately to the cooperative program. And, and listen to me, friend, as your pastor, it is a good and pleasing thing in the eyes of the Lord that we do this. We are for this and it benefits us. I'm a beneficiary of the cooperative program. Of that 10% that goes out, there's 1% of that that goes to our TBA, Tarrant Baptist Association. Uh, and then the other half of that goes to the Riverbend Retreat Center that, that we help and we supplement and, and that we send. But today we want to bring special attention and recognition to two things. One, our world missions offering. Now there are six countries that we are currently engaged in where members of Travis uh, have gone out and, and they either currently serve or we send teams to go out. We had a, a big parade of flags in the first traditional service this morning that represented that. And so we can give specifically over this month to the world missions offering and it will go to support some of those teams and the work that our church has chosen to align with. And I'm not gonna talk about all those today because it would be too much, but we'll be weaving some of those opportunities in for you to serve. Currently, we have over $55,000 that has been given to the World Missions Offering. And that's a remarkable thing. And so this is going to help Travis people primarily, but, but it will help in other entities uh, to be able to go and to proclaim and preach the gospel. 
But the other thing that we're emphasizing today is, I would just say this is a, a, a fantastic thing rooted in our history, uh, but it's old school Southern Baptists, all right? And it's a good thing and it is pleasing in the eyes of the Lord, in particular, our Lottie Moon offering that we will begin giving to over the course of the month of December. Now, you may or may not know who Lottie Moon is, and I'm going to show you a picture of her up there. Uh, a little over 100 years ago, she left the United States at about 30 years old, traveled to China where she was teaching, uh, basically in some girls' schools, teaching English and teaching math and arithmetic. But Lottie had a heart for missions, and she would wander off into the interior of China where she would go and she would share and proclaim the gospel. Uh, she would be a witness to the good things that God had done. And she labored her entire life over in China doing this. And the reason why we remember her as Southern Baptist is because she was one of the first Southern Baptists and the way in which she sort of pioneered, the way in which we give money and, and our, our IMB is supportive. And so it is, again, a good and noble thing in the sight of the Lord that we give towards the Lottie Moon offering. Currently uh, in our account, we have $55,954.86 that have been, has been given towards Lottie Moon. And that is a good and pleasing thing in the sight of the Lord. And so what we're here to do just very quickly is just simply ask, as, as the Lord leads you to give, that you would give and consider giving to either directly to Lottie Moon um, or uh, giving directly to our world's mission offering. You can uh, allocate that however you want to. Uh, and, and then we will make sure that those funds go to support primarily the work that God is doing, not here but elsewhere, which is what we're going to linger on a little bit today uh, as well. And so uh, we want to encourage you to be able to give and, and to do that and to do that faithfully and with excellence, as I know that we have in the past. And so to be proud of our offerings uh, for those things. But we're, this morning, we're here to walk through uh, a passage in the book of Romans that if you have ever engaged on mission or you've ever studied missionary movements or really just read through scripture, you've come across this passage that may or may not be familiar to you. But I can tell you as your pastor moving forward that this verse, these passages are going to help define Travis for the future. I've been asked over and over and over again, either before I got here three or four weeks ago, but also concurrently as I've been here, the question has been, what's, what's the vision? Where are we headed? What are we doing? And I don't ultimately know what that looks like. We're still gathering information and talking and trying to listen and ask good, thoughtful questions to determine that. But I do know unequivocally that as a church, we are going to continue along in the legacy, continue in the path that we are a church that is going to be for the nations and to be a church that is geared towards what God is doing, not just here, but to the uttermost parts of the world. So write this down if, uh, if you brought a pen. I want to introduce you to what's known as the Joshua Project really quickly. And the Joshua Project is a group of individuals that you can Google them and, and find their website, but it is a group of individuals who their sole aim is seeking to promote the welfare of, of individuals and people groups that have not heard the gospel and had the opportunity to respond to the gospel. Now, one of the things that the Joshua Project estimates is that there are 7,000 different people groups who have yet to be reached. And, and, and the amount of people groups total is somewhere between 13 and 14,000. And who this 7,000 groups of people are is they are united, not by country, but rather by language and culture. That's how they've been defined. So for instance, in the country of Nigeria, 
one country with one flag, yet over 544 different people groups that live in that country, that have their own language, that exist within their own culture. Of that 7,000 people groups, listen to this, this would be the equivalent the precise number is a little bit over 7,100, but this is somewhere in the ballpark of 3.19 billion people. Over 3 billion people have not heard or do not have the opportunity because they live in a country that prohibits the word of God. They can't gather together like we do on Sunday mornings, but over 3 billion people have yet to hear and to respond to the gospel. That's roughly about 42% of the world's population has little or no access to the gospel. Another way to think about it is this, and this is probably the most alarming thing to me. For every person in this world that comes to know Christ, that professes a saving knowledge in Jesus, there are an additional 35 new babies born at the same time and in tandem to that. So as people get saved, there's another 35 that come into existence that the Lord brings into this that, that have not heard. And so what that tells us as a church is this, is that, is that our rate of, of conversion and, and evangelism where people are responding in positive ways to the gospel is not keeping up with the world's population. In other words, just to put it really bluntly, you can look at it like this, we are losing. We're losing ground on the world's population. Now you may say, well, pastor, that's great. What does all that have to do with world's missions offering and Lottie Moon and an emphasis here? I'm glad you asked. And so let's look in the book of Romans and let's tie this in into what God is, is saying to our church and how we are and who we are to be defined as moving forward in the future. Now I told you we're gonna begin in verse, verse 14, but actually uh, we're actually gonna look at verse one before we read verses 14 through 17. And so in Romans 10, I want you to draw your attention to, to what Paul begins to say to the church in Rome. Look with me at the text where it says this, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. The first couple of things I want you to notice in verse one is him clarifying his heart's desire and prayer. And so what Paul is saying by this, what it literally reads as is that the petition that I am regularly coming before God at, and two, the thing that I'm praying the most frequently, the thing I'm asking God to do is I am praying in a, in a burden typed way, in a desirous way that God would reveal himself through the proclamation of the gospel, through his people to these Greeks and these barbarians and these Jews that have yet to respond to the gospel. This idea of, of my heart's desire, it's the thing that, that lingers the most in my thoughts and in my affections. But I want you to notice what he says, in my heart's desire and my prayer is what? Is what? What does the text say? For God, for them is that they may be what? What does it say? Hold on, what does it say? Saved. Saved. My heart's desire and my affections, my prayer is that they would be saved. Friend, when I look at the future of Travis and who we are, who we want to be, who we want to become, 
what old values we want to sort of dig in on and make sure that we champion versus maybe what new areas of growth that we need to move into. Uh, I am, I am, there is no doubt in my mind that Travis Avenue moving forward, that we have to be, we must be the thing that is most preeminent and predominant in our thinking, in our ideology, in our practice, in what we say and how we act is that we are a church that exists for the gospel. We exist for the gospel. That all the way up from our preschool ministry through children's, through our student ministry, into college, into our young families and marrieds and singles, all the way up to the boomers and the senior adults, that every aspect of every ministry that we have here, all the things that we do are done for that end, is to make much of the gospel that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners from themselves and from what the Bible would just call eternal damnation, that we believe in a real hell, that it's real, that it's not a figment, it's not an idea, it's not a metaphor, that it is a real place. We exist for the gospel. But then I want you to focus on verse 14, where Paul says, but these people who have yet to hear, he asked this question for us, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they, they've never heard? And how are they to hear unless someone preaches? How do people respond to the gospel apart from someone proclaiming that message to them? I shared this quote with you several weeks ago. It's by one of my favorite theologians, Carl Henry. And I'm paraphrasing him, but he says it this way. The gospel means good news only if it gets there in time. That quote reflects this text in such a way that it communicates the urgency of the gospel and the way in which we are to live and to exist within our lives. That, that when we are cut open and we bleed, we bleed the gospel. When our heart rate gets up and we start sweating, we are, we are sweating the gospel. It permeates everything that we do, how we think, how we function, how we live our lives. How can they call on him in whom they have not believed? Look at verse 15 where he goes on and he says this, how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now I got a confession to make to you as your pastor. Um, I do not like looking at feet. Truth be told, I don't want to see any of your toes. Feet are made to have socks and shoes on them, in my opinion. Now, I'll, I'll wear sandals sometimes, and, and I will do that, but, but feet aren't particularly fun to look at, at least for me. But here in this moment, he's not just talking about the idea of the physical appearance of feet. He is talking about those that go forth and they bear witness of the gospel and the testimony of Jesus to, to the uttermost parts of the world, but also into the areas that surround them. How beautiful are the people who are proclaiming the good news in their cities and in the nations, everywhere they go. And one of the things that our church needs to remember and to recall and to constantly be reminded of that you individually and us corporately is this, is that we are a part of God's purposes to proclaim the gospel to the nations. The local church, my brothers and sisters, is plan A in the kingdom. We're not B team. This isn't JV basketball. This isn't even sixth grade church league basketball. No offense to the church leaguers out there. 
The local church is, plan, is God's plan. It's plan A for the kingdom. It is the plan. And God has, has purpose for us. And the purpose is that we would bear witness to the nations about the good news of Christ. Now there's this scene in Acts 10 where you've got this moment where, where Peter is, is teaching some things that he doesn't quite know and understand what he's saying and, and, the, and the intended meaning of it. And so what happens is, is that God uh, speaks to a guy named Cornelius in Acts 10. Some of you are familiar with the story. And God speaks to Cornelius and tells Cornelius he needs to go find this guy, Peter, who's, who, who can't understand what he's teaching and he needs to be corrected. And so Cornelius is sent by God on mission to go teach and proclaim a message to Peter, a learned man at the time or at this point in, in his career to a degree. And so God, in his mercy and in his goodness, sends Cornelius in Acts 10 to go tell Peter something of, of importance and, and of significance. And the reason why that ties into the text this morning in verse 15 in particular is because it helps us ask this question. Do you ever think that God is stirring up some of you because he is working on someone over there? Like, do you ever process it in such a way that God is teaching you and showing you things, not so much so that you can understand yourself better or even understand God better, though both of those things more than likely happen, but rather because God is working on someone else somewhere across the ocean or right across the street in order that as he stirs within us, he moves in them. And then all of a sudden it's this moment like Cornelius going to Peter to then speak truth to him. This happened to me not too long ago where I happened to be at a car wash and I was doing uh, my good husbandly, is that a word, husbandly, husband duties and I was going to wash my wife's minivan. Listen, fellas, you want to score points with your wife? First of all, be unashamed to drive a minivan, okay? <laughs> Second of all, Go wash it and vacuum it out and put some gas in it, right? It just fills my, my wife's love tank right up. And so I go trying to serve my wife and to help her. And so I go to this car wash and, and I'm by myself, I'm doing my thing and I'm approached by this guy who comes up and he says, hey, I, I can't get my car started. Do you have a set of jumper cables? And when I first saw him, he didn't look like me and talk like me. In fact, he looked really, really different than me. And I was like, at first, my, 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 my posture was one of defense. Like, what are you doing, man? Back up. Because he came up on me quick. And I said, absolutely, I've got some jumper cables. And so I go, I move my van around and I go park right next to his and we, we jump his car and his car gets going. And then we start talking and, he, and I ask him his name and I, I start to just talk to him and just ask him questions. Where are you headed? What are you doing? And so then he says, well, what's your name and, and what do you do? And I said, well, it just so happens I'm a pastor. And, uh, and so I start talking about where I was serving and, and what I was doing. And, and then I went into this process where all of a sudden as we're talking and I could see that he was hungry for something. And we started talking and we entered into this conversation about the Lord. And he was a man that said, yeah, I, I prayed to receive Christ a long time ago. And I was like, well, that's great. Tell me, are you walking with God now? Are you close to him? Or do you, do you sense that in your life? And he said, no. And we ended up in this conversation. And throughout the whole conversation of me talking to him about the gospel, all I could think of was, Lord, you didn't send me to the car wash today to wash my wife's van and to score some points. You sent me to the car wash today so I could meet this man and, and eventually share Christ with him and proclaim the news of Jesus, that he had died for his sins and died for him and for particular and that today was the day of his salvation. It wasn't just a trip. 
But there was something that God was doing, stirring up within me so that because he was moving in this man's life, that he needed to hear the gospel in my city. But the same is true of our nation, of the nations. But look with me at verse 15 and he goes on and he says, how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Notice what it says at the end of the first sentence in verse 15. Notice that word sent. Two things happen with that. Does God or the church send people? The answer real quickly is just both. God will stir in your heart a desire for certain things. And the thing that I would encourage you to do is is being a part of a a church, belonging to a church and membership means that that you're coming to, to be in submission to the spiritual authority over your life, whether it be the student minister or the children's minister or it be the, the pastor or one of the elders or whoever that might be. And I want to encourage you as, as a church and as a family to understand that, that God places the call on people's life, but we confirm it as a church, but we want to be a church. Listen to this. He's writing to a specific group of people at this moment. How are they to preach unless they are sent? Sent by who? The answer is clear. Sent by the church, the, the family of God, sending out their best amongst the world. And everything that we do as a church leads to this moment where we want to be a church that is about sending people into the world. And I say that statement with this caveat, so listen up closely. If we're not going, we must be focusing our efforts on sending. If we individually are are not going, then everything we do is with the aim that we would send people out. That we would multiply, not just in our small groups, we would multiply out in our church to be a church that plants churches, that sends people to the uttermost parts of the world. And if you don't find yourself going to the nations, and you find yourself more along the sending, whether it be praying and and giving and, and serving those to help mobilize those, those who help send should be every bit as committed to the work as those that go. It's not just for the ones that go, but all of us are apart and together working to mobilize those people to the uttermost parts of the world. Look at verse 16 where it goes on and it says this, but they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what we, has, what we has heard, have heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So just a, a real quick aside, but a question that comes up often particularly on college campuses, particularly with those that might be seeking and maybe you're here today and maybe you're a seeker and and you're questioning the faith and and asking yourself, is there a God and and can I know him? Can he be real? And the question that inevitably comes out of this is that what about those that never hear? What happens to those 3.19 billion people? If we're losing ground, what happens to them? And so that, the question from that is essentially this. Does God, the good benevolent God that you proclaim to know, does he send innocent people to hell? And I want to answer this for us this morning very clearly. The answer to that is no. God does not send innocent people to hell. He absolutely 100% does not send innocent people. Now you may say, well, that sounds blasphemous. 
You may say, well, well that, that doesn't quite sound right. What, what about hell and what about eternal damnation and, and those kinds of things? Because the truth is God can't send innocent people to hell because there are no such thing as innocent people. Innocence doesn't exist. According to the Bible, it tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not one single person in here or that has ever existed outside of the person of Jesus that has been innocent and blameless. For the wages of our sin in Romans 6 is that we deserve death. We deserve the punishment, the chastisement that was upon him. We deserved those things. And so the answer to the question of the seeker, well, does God send innocent people to hell? No, because there are no innocent people. And that idea, that truth has to sort of captivate us and it has to grip us with a sense of urgency to go and to tell. But I want you to see in verse 17, when he makes this statement, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It teaches us this broader principle in verse 17 that people have to hear the message to actually benefit from the message. They have to hear it. This came alive to me when I was a student minister. We had taken a group of kids. I was serving at a church in South Fort Worth, first church I've ever been at. And we were a part of the association youth camp. And we were in this room full of about a thousand teenagers. And the speaker was up talking and uh, it was a small room. It was hot and sweaty. Everybody was a little bit miserable. And then all of a sudden in the middle of the sermon, uh, there were like three kids uh, sitting about right here. And they, they get up in the middle of the, of the sermon. And everybody behind them could see them. I was in the back and I was like, oh, brother, you know, there was real crowded. They were in the middle. So they had to walk through, you know, everybody. And you could just tell like, like, you know, oftentimes when the middle schooler is up to no good, right? Like you could just tell they didn't want to hear it. And and so they were just going to go out and linger in the bathroom in the potty for, you know, 20 minutes or something like that. And so I see the guys get up and then all of a sudden I see the speaker, a guy by the name of John Randall. He's passed and he's, he's with the Lord now. And, and John, just in the middle of this room of a thousand people, I couldn't believe he did this. He goes, uh, excuse me, where are you going? And they all three just like turned and looked at him, you know, and then like all the other middle school kids were like, no, you know, like, you know, like this, this is, uh, this is pretty harsh. And the kid yelled back. He's like, we're going to the bathroom. And I'll never forget what John did because at the time I was so shocked that he did it, but I understood later why he did that. He goes, no, you're not. Sit down because what I'm about to say may change your life or change your friend's life. <laughs> All the adults in the back that like were just fed up with middle schoolers at the time were like, yeah, right? <laughs> like somebody tell them. But in that moment, what he communicated, though it might've been overly harsh and I don't know what happened to the kids and I'm not advising that, you know, if somebody gets up in the bathroom and here in the service, I'm not gonna tell you to sit down. Like, <laughs> you're okay. Like, if you gotta go, go, you know, I get it. We don't want you to have an accident. But for John, he understood what his message could, could change their life and they could benefit from that, but they can't benefit from it if they're out in the bathroom, right? They couldn't benefit from it if they, if they didn't hear it. Because what does the text say? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word. The word of God, as revealed in scripture, the word of God tells us what to do, but it also gives us the power to actually do it. So the more I listen to the word of God and hear the word of God and respond to the word of God, the more it begins to change my heart. It changes the way I think, how I feel, how I process things, and how I look forward to things. 
And so all of this is given in the context of these people who have yet to hear. So I want to conclude this way this morning with you. I want to give you two things that have been on my heart as I've come back to Travis and as I've seen, as I've talked and I'm still talking and talking to staff. Some of you, uh, some of you gray hairs that are out here, you'll, you'll be familiar with this book. Some of you, you may not. There's a book uh, It was written in the late 80s. In fact, I think the last printing was maybe in 89 and it's the history of Travis Avenue Baptist Church. It starts from the very beginning. And I, I've read that book actually twice since I've been here. Um, and because I, I'm just, I'm, I'm fascinated by our history. Uh, I want to learn more about some of the guys that have been, but it, it stops in 89. So we need somebody to, to carry it on from there and sort of ride in that legacy. But here's the, there's two things as I look to the past of Travis that I know that we can hold on to moving forward. Look at me this way. And it's this. Our church has a history that we want to continue, that we exist We are a people who exist. You talk about vision. There's not a greater vision than this. Is the one that we are a church who exists for the gospel. That's in our history. It's in our DNA. And it ought to continue to permeate everything that we do. And so you're going to hear statements from me and our staff in the future. We want to be gospel-centered. We want to make sure that we're rooted in the the life of the gospel, the well-being of those things. We exist to proclaim this message. But the second thing that our history is rooted in, that is obedient to the scriptures, is that we are a church who exists for the nations. Like we exist to be on mission with God to the uttermost parts of the world. And and, and we hope in the future that it's not just the six countries and the groups that we partner with, but strategically trying to figure out of those 3.19 billion people who less than 1% of those groups have access or, or have never heard the gospel. How can Travis play a role in sending people to go and preach that good news because we are a church that exists for the nations. Friend, I want to end and I want to tell you this, that wherever we are, God has us where we are for a reason. And maybe tomorrow you you can't go to the nations, but but tomorrow when you get up and go to work or go to school, God has you in in this kingdom and you're there with purpose. And by way of just application, what I would say to you is this, is that be sent to the people that are in your life right now. Be sent to them. Go and and, and proclaim and preach. I want to end this way. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. Sounds very Southern Baptist, doesn't it? I'm going to read over you a picture found in Revelation chapter 7. And it is a moment in, in time that will come where all the nations are gathered together. And here, here's what it looks like. Here's our aim. Here's what we're trying to do through our church. Imagine this scene with me. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Every nation, all tribes, all people, every language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in in 
white robes of, of righteousness being covered with the blood of Christ, with palm branches in their heads and, and crying out this multitude of people, these, these tribes and these nations and these tongues all crying out with a loud voice simultaneously, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb who was worthy to be slain. Travis family, we exist for the nations to hear. God has decreed it for his glory, for our good, to call us to be a part of his purpose. We have a legacy of this, but we have a responsibility to to navigate it into the future and to stir our hearts with a bigger vision and a bigger picture of what it could be. What if one day we looked up in this room and we saw every nation and tribe and people and tongue? I think it's true that though God may not be sending us to the nations, he's sending some of the nations to us. And we have a responsibility as steward. So here's how we want to end today. I want God to raise up teenagers. I want him to raise up children. I want God to call some of our college students to maybe give up a semester of their life or a year of their life to go and to be on mission. Maybe somebody here is studying at Southwestern and maybe God would reorient your life and your your trajectory in life to go and to proclaim the gospel to the 1% that have not heard, the 3 billion people that have yet to even hear the name of Jesus. Church, we can have the best strategy in the world to do that, but if we don't start with prayer, it'll never happen. We can have the best process, write the best books, have the most intentional strategy, but if we don't begin in prayer, it will not happen. So here's our response time today. Would you join me at this altar, those that would agree with me, and say, God, raise up a generation in our church to go to the nations. And let that be our our cry today. Let that be the thing that, that stirs our affections, that one day we will be with every tribe, people, language, and tongue. Lord, let it be so. I'm gonna invite you to stand and to respond. I'm gonna invite some of you to join me down front if you agree with that. And let us cry and let us pray to our good God to move in our midst and to raise up a group of people in this church to go to the uttermost parts of the world. You stand and you respond.